Are we live? Are we live? Uh oh. Uh oh. I think so. I think so. Hey, all you crazy sci fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Ms. Jennifer Yanez, introduce herself to our listeners and viewers. Uh, you might remember she's been on the show as her alter ego, her crime-fighting <laughs> self, Miss J.R. Castle. Um, but uh, when she's not pretending to be a superhero, she's also Jennifer, which is kind of cool, too. Yeah, you know what? I, it's so funny. I wear so many hats, uh, go by many names, and so it's always like, who am I right now? What am I supposed to be doing? So today, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm here as Jennifer Yanez, CEO, co-founder of Archimedes Books uh, Publishing and Wolfpack Entertainment Production Company. That's right. We're getting into film. And so, um, you know, we are all about the same, same thing we love here on this podcast, right? The blades, the blasters, the stars, the adventures, the camaraderie, the quest. Um, that's what we're doing with all of our content from the books on to film as well. All right. The next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. So I actually met her through her husband and Jonathan Yanez and I met back before the dawn of time when we used to carve our stories on the stone tablets. Obviously, Jennifer's much younger than him, much younger. But but I met her through him and uh, the three of us share Stargate memes. So it's, it's a match made in heaven. Uh, I mean, what's not to love about Stargate, right? Right. And I, yeah, it goes back a long time in this sort of group and industry there's people that fade in fade out life happens in different seasons but it's been really cool to say that we have known you for so long and in person and online too so i feel like somehow like we have those really cool core memories together so jonathan uh and i met through i want to say the 20 books group and I mm -hmm. was looking for interviews when we were still sci-fi shenanigans. So this is 2017-ish. Um, and so yeah, he was one of our first, started. yeah, he was one of the first authors to say yes to the interview. Because, you know, when you're first starting out, nobody knows who you are. Are you a waste of their time? Whatever. And I get it. Like, understand you got to build content. And so in the beginning, anyone that said yes was our instant friend. And so he's been, uh, and now, of course, we're on season, we did two and a half seasons of sci-fi shenanigans. And now we're on season three of Plasters and blades, and he's been on a bunch of times. He's always fun to talk to, although he always makes me feel like I need to drink like more caffeine to keep up with him because he's got so much energy. <laughs> you know like, that is such, it's an ongoing funny thing in our house. Like if they're if you're real life tropes, like within the family, um, it's his energy. It's either really high or like really low. It's not that he's manic. It's just that our schedules are so different. To, to be sure, he's yeah. up at five a.m writing he's like 100 percent go like that's just his 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 person right and then by dinner time it is just like downhill from there and then tell him like your eyes are glossy you look tired you need more water and he's just like trying to get to that eight o'clock point where the kids are in bed asleep and it's like almost his own bedtime <laughs> whereas i am up working or you know researching and whatnot to like 11 o'clock at night and then i'll read and then go to sleep and i don't wake up till eight so uh you know by two o'clock in the afternoon i'm just reaching my peak of my energy and um good to go for the night so 
yeah, it's an ongoing thing. His, his I, I jokingly thing. call him, I jokingly call him a cyborg wolf because he does the whole wolf pack as your guys' branding, but he's part mm -hmm. cyborg because only part machine makes that possible. I just don't, he's just all the time. I'm like, dude, take a deep breath. It's like, stop writing for a year so we can all catch up. <laughs> you know, Although really, since you, really, uh huh, I was just say since you guys started going for the film too, once you got that first approach, and we'll get into that, uh, how that mm -hmm. all came about. But once that started back when he slowed down on the writing to give the rest of us room to catch up. Yes, and so it was very nice of him. Uh, Consider it right. Yeah, so we convinced him to to, to pump the brakes a bit. Um, but what we wanted to do is, I'm mean, not that we didn't have depth, but it was at this pace what if we could slow down a little bit and uh the books wouldn't be so frequent but they could be a little longer and they could have we, we can go deeper with the marketing schedule and interject some other things in between and so uh i think we're going into our second or third maybe it's hard to tell because even though we're only midway through this year like everything's already forecasted for next year uh, but it'll be going into our third year of this new rhythm. And so like in a dream world for him, I think he's writing one to two books a year and putting out one film a year. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see if we can, when we can get there, not if, like when we can get there. Uh, yeah. I have found like one of the things that Jonathan's very, uh, and, and you too, but I, I, you know, since it's his universe where we're talking about, he's very, yeah. um, he, he's not just positive about himself. Like he pushes that onto others. Like I, I remember when we first met in Vegas and we were drinking at the bar. Uh, Cause that's what, you know, it's really what everyone went to. Not, not just alcohol, just in general to socialize with the other authors. And I was, mm -hmm. someone was mm -hmm. talking about how fast they wrote and how I didn't really have much of a chance if I didn't write faster. And so I was like, dude, look, you know, with my brain damage, I write, I work twice, twice as hard to get half as much productivity as the rest of you. You know, I'm doing just fine. And that's when he was, he looked at the guy who's more established than both of us at the time. I won't name names because this could not come off as nice. And the guy was otherwise very friendly. I don't, I don't mean it like as mm -hmm. an attack, but mm -hmm. Jonathan was like, no, you're, you're never competing against everyone else. You're competing against yourself. Did you do better today than you did yesterday? That's all that matters. Yeah. And that's all yeah. your readers care about is because they want to see growth. And then I read after we had that conversation and I had that light bulb moment, I read Jonathan, uh, no, Jonathan, Jack Campbell, John Henry is his rebranding his birth name. Uh, he wrote the Lost Worlds, Lost Fleet series. And you could, mm -hmm. uh, they were published trad pubs. So they were years apart between all of them. I listened to them back to back and you could hear the author and the narrator together. Cause at the time it was a new narrator. Um, he's the one who narrated the galaxy, uh, the reservists for the galaxy's edge universe for me. But at the time he was a nobody and you could listen to both of them get better as the series went on. And I'm like, okay, that's what he meant. Cause I was like rooting for him as he's getting, the pros are getting better. The descriptions are getting better. I'm like, okay, I get it now. Um, so yes. he's, he's very yes encouraging on the fitness too which i think in the writing nerd community sometimes we forget to the body we're living in not the worlds we're living in on page matters too mm -hmm. and so it's i sent him a thing when I, I hit the i lost 30 pounds mark and i said now it's time to kick it up a notch and he's like no uh no more half-assing it only full ass and i'm like no i want to lose the ass he's like oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> so Anyway. Yeah, no, imagine living with that guy 24-7, JR, what do you You almost need <laughs> caffeine just to like make it, like, okay, hold, hold on, John, let me take this sip of the coffee. Okay, we're good now. Yeah, yeah, no, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, okay, like I'm a slow starter to my morning. 
Um, Me too. Very, and my son yeah. is an insomniac. And not only is he an insomniac, he's very cheerful in the morning. I'm like, dude, not enough coffee yet. Pump the brakes. So I yeah. live with that with my son. I don't, I don't know how yeah. people do that. It's often like, I'm like, you know, coming out of the room for the first time in the day, like one eye open and he's like, so did you get my message on discord? This, this, that, this, that. And I'm like, <laughs> let me brush my teeth. Let me get some coffee, splash some water on my face. And we can begin thinking. I remember uh, for our upcoming project, we were recording videos, right? We got to record some videos to like market it and explain it. And so uh, it was in the morning and uh, he's ready to go. We got it all set up, got the cameras, the lighting, the everything. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to like grab coffee and I'll meet you. I couldn't deliver a line. I could not deliver a line straight. At one point he's like, hi, I'm Jonathan Yanez, author and, you know, writer for this project. And I was like, hi, I'm Jennifer Yanez, writer, uh, director. Wait, what am I doing? <laughs> and I was like, we got <laughs> to put this later in the day or I can't do this. <laughs> Um, I will say yeah, then, he's mm -hmm. he's very willing to share that though. Like he, he used to be a trainer. I know he still does some. So if you want full training advice, you're gonna have to hire someone. But as if you're friends with him and you get a general question or two, he has no problem helping. And I like that because I do the same thing. Like you got to pay everything forward, right? Um, it's a karma thing, and I, I like people that appreciate that worldview. So if you, I know I'm going to get questions for people, how I lost the 30 pounds, it's two simple things. I downloaded and paid for the app. It's called lose it app with an exclamation point, And it lets me track everything I eat. Uh, and it coincides that with how much water you drink, how much um, steps you take. And I added that. So I knew exactly what I was putting in my body. And it's surprisingly when you cook at home, man, I, I'm like, I get this at home. 500 calories and I'm full. Get the same meal, same portion size at a restaurant, 1500 calories, and you're still hungry. It's all the chemicals yeah. and stuff they put in it. And so when you cook for yourself, it it's crazy what you can do. It is. So I know it's not like a fitness or health podcast or episode, probably like a Jonathan episode, but uh, yeah, we're huge proponents of that. Like cooking at home, every meal is uh, meat and veg or fruit, veg. Like I say veg, but it's not really veg because, um, Fruit is good too, is really good. But uh, we had a friend who who was doing Weight Watchers and he asked like, but can I eat bananas? Like bananas have a lot of sugar. And then his coach told him like, you're not here because you ate too many bananas. Like you're fine with the bananas. You're not here for the weight loss community because you ate too much fruit. Like that's not what got you here. Fruit is an issue. You know, if you have diabetic and you have high glycemic, um, issues but really it's like but protein helps balance those insulin spikes so uh, a lot of like uh, pregnant women who test positive for gestational diabetes they will be given a regimen on what to eat and it'll be like strawberries with string cheese or low gi like berries on the low gi fruit level uh low gi yeah it's a good low gi fruit so you can have like berries with cottage cheese because of the protein in there helps to make sure there's no spikes. So anyway, if you eat meat and you eat it with just uh, fruit and vegetables, like just about every meal, then like you will be good to go. And then drink half your body weight in ounces of water per day. If you ever wanted to know that. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember how they figured it out. I just know that I was told I need to drink what 128 ounces, so a gallon and some change a day. And they mm -hmm. did that based on my weight. So I don't remember the exact formula. Yep. I just do yep. it. I will say that, um, so with the, I just added walking. I started, I couldn't walk a thousand steps without like huffing mm -hmm. and puffing. And I walked 6,000. The American Heart Association says 10,000 steps a day. 
at this point because I still only have a set time. If you can't walk faster, then you have to walk farther. I can't always do that either. So what I've started doing is wearing a weighted vest. So that's it. And then on the food side, just tracking what you eat makes a huge difference. Um, And then I do, I find that most of the time my bad eating comes when I'm in a rush, like life happens. So when you meal prep and you've got all those meals, like I can pull something out of the microwave or out of the freezer, throw it in the microwave and I've got a a well-balanced meal because I made essentially my own microwave meals. Um, Mm -hmm. But then you got to worry about like shelf life of that isn't as long. So I recently got into canning. So I can some of my own soups and stuff that are really good. Oh, that's the whole nother addiction for us. It's fun. It's an addiction. Yeah, I've got like 28 cans now. And I'm like, I've got seven more cans. What can I can? Uh, And so I, I, I over prepped for COVID, not so much that I worried, uh, like some of these people went crazy about all the toilet paper. I just live in a hurricane prone area. I know what my neighbors do when there's a panic. And so I was preparing for the stupid, the stupidity of large groups of humans together, not so much anything else, which I would still do Mm -hmm. today. But uh, I overestimated how much my teenage boys would eat. Uh, and so I had a lot of meat in the freezer that's close to, you know, where it's going to start freezer burning. I'm like, you know, if I can it and cook it now, then I get another three to five years out of the same produce and I don't have to throw anything yeah. away. And so I started yeah, canning. Okay. It's, it's, it's such a relaxing hobby too. Cause like you get to experiment with flavors and um, it's fun. It's fun. I, I, that's uh, I dream of a homestead. If I sell enough books, I'm going to buy a couple acres out in the country and call it good. I'll still write, but at least I won't have all the crowds around me. Um, but yeah, so that's yeah, my I new hobby. It. But that's oh it. So lose it out, people. Try it and just walk. And just walk. I don't do no gym membership. I don't go lift weights. Uh, in fact, until I hit under 300 pounds, my uh, dietitian and doctors don't want me to because uh, they overdose us on cortisone to keep us in the field. So I was getting shots at each knee when I was in Iraq for a year. And that's a fat-soluble medicine. means it's in your fat cell. So as you lose weight, I have to constantly monitor that I'm not re-releasing too much of that at once into my system. Um, the the reason I mentioned nutritionist though is I showed her the VA hooked me up with one what I was doing through the Lose It app, and she says that's what I would have told you to do too. So keep doing it. So if you want to know, at least with my situation, nutritionist said the app was good for me. So take that that's with a grain of salt. We're not ear doctors. You can listen to um, audiobooks too while you're walking, so you're not really losing. I do. Yeah. So that's I my trick time. is I. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks, but I won't let myself, if I'm not driving somewhere or walking, because sometimes you have to drive errands, so it's my way to to disconnect from traffic. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, All of my trauma in Iraq happened on the road. So for me, driving is stressful. So instead of eating crap while I drive, now I listen to audiobooks. But I, I found a couple times, in fact, the Forsaken Mercenary books were one. I'm like, I really need to stop. I'm out of my allotted time for this walk. But two more laps won't kill me because I have to hear the end of this chapter because I wanted to know what happened. <laughs> You know, so that's that's, like that's the good motivation about those books is that every uh you are like I didn't get it so okay I don't uh that's about the time that I stopped reading all of Jonathan's books because there were just too many and yeah that's when I had, that. yeah that was the right about the time so like there was too many and I had to focus on the marketing and at that time I think I still had my I was still working at my ad agency full time and um you know, we had editors, we had beta readers, we had advanced early readers, we had uh, uh, somebody was producing the audio. So there was like, like, there was no reason for me to to do any of that anymore. So it wasn't until I think we're during the German translations that I started to see more of the actual content of the book. 
but we have recently done a whole new marketing uh, development stuff with that series. And so having to dive deep, like super deep into all of the reviews and see like, what is it about this series that really resonated with people? Like I got, I understood that it is a near future sci-fi thriller and that has elements that feel like Jason Bourne in there and um, a little bit of like that in the earlier part, like that roadhouse with Dalton and this like camaraderie between him and his leader. So it was like, okay, I get it. You know, it's fast paced and everyone's like breakneck, like high impact action like all this stuff like it's addicting like i got through it so much quicker than i anticipated and i'm on book eight or was it i'm finishing up book eight and i just started last week i'm like what in the world people like you can't help it you can't put it down i'm like what is wrong with these people like i love them but how is this possible well going back through the book in preparation for the film i was like just gonna read the first couple of chapters like five chapters later and i was like oh my gosh like you exactly what you're saying is you don't realize that you're leading from one scene into the next because you're just like i have to i have to feel this resolution and then you get to it and by the time you're out of that resolution you're like well, now i'm gone this hole like what's going on i gotta get this resolution and what's gonna happen with that and yeah it is it was it was so strange to experience something that i had heard about for so long with that series. Yeah, I, I, that's why I like people that keep the stories like you do grimdark and I, it's a slog for me to listen. I know people love it so I'm not not yucking your yum, but like for, that's why I like you know the good versus evil, the classic sort of tropes that made sci-fi what it is and the you know heroism winning in the end like the positive message because I just there's enough darkness in the world I've seen it firsthand. So for me I like messages where they the like it might not it's not that they they don't have trials and tribulations but in the end of the day you know the good guys are going to win most of them will come home and, and the you know the, the darkness will will be pushed back for another day another episode whatever and I like that Jonathan writes that way too because it keeps it so you don't have to worry. Like I, I never read a book and be like, oh, this character's definitely not going to die. Well, the main character in Forsaken Mercenary, since there are X number of books out in the series, you can kind of guess if you're coming at it late. But if you didn't know that going in, it's never feels like uh, plot armor is going to keep this character or that character alive, right? I mean, obviously yeah. the main character will stay till the, at least till the last book in the series. Generally speaking, that's just a trope of the genre. But mm -hmm. other than that, like everything feels like it's on the table. But I also don't feel, feel like Jonathan's as much of a sadist as, say, like a George R. R. Martin is to his characters. And, right. and it makes it to get sucked in because you don't feel like, am I going to like this person just to have him slaughtered on page two kind of thing? Right. You're not going into it with that kind of trepidation. I think you really nailed that. That was something I don't think in the beginning from a marketing perspective and from, you know, marketing, I mean, it, it twofold is branding and marketing as in communicating to potential new readers what this is about it you know we didn't do that intentionally it's just part of his dna that comes across in his stories is that it's it's simple good versus evil even the bad guys might have some redeemable characteristics about them but at the end of the day it is classic sci-fi good guys versus bad guys the good guys have to win you know, you're not walking, like, yeah, that trepidation of like, is this character gonna turn, you know, are they gonna turn in a different way? Am I gonna feel deceived? Am I gonna leave this with a heavy 
moment. And uh, there's a couple of authors that I talked to as well. And they're like, people don't leave this book with angst, um, with, with that's their intention. And that's what's Jonathan, exactly what you're saying, JR is there's enough darkness. There's enough heavy stuff. And, and you know what? And if, if people want to consume that, they need that in life, by all means, they can go get it elsewhere. But sometimes you just want to feel good and go on a good, fun adventure and get that like heart pumping and adrenaline going and, and have like a good time with it. And I think that's what a lot of like classic sci-fi, whether it's in film or in books, like that's what really bolstered the, the genre in the beginning because you think about the times that they came from like uh i i was listening or talking with someone recently actually they were talking about the psychology of genres and so within the amish i don't know if your readers would know this but amish romance is like a huge genre right now and um it could be because it's safe it's simpler times it's low tech the relationships aren't as strained like it's you know a lot of times it's like that old cozy feeling and that's a natural reaction to uncertain times and fast-paced lives and high-tech lives and that becomes a safe space well for people who are coming to routine and you know especially you think about the 50s yes we had the cold war and all that but like uh life standard life like typical life it changed because like there was manufacturing, there was economic boom, there were um, suburban living, there was not just like, am I going to die at the factory today? Am I going to get my hand chopped off and risk, you know, crazy machinery? And so life became a little bit more stable, but there, so it gave everybody that sense of comfort, but then there was just this human nature to want some adventure. And that's where like sci-fi could really go big. And so folks, now and you know probably forever like we're gonna look to the stars you know if, if you're you're in a good spot you're gonna look to the stars um you probably don't want to like get too scared and see what's looking back at you and there's where like the, the cozy kind of sci-fi settings come into play of like what you were saying it's not like george R. R. martin and you're gonna like a character and their head's gonna be served on the potter in the next couple of chapters so i think uh, i was thinking about this while you were talking i think because Jonathan writes the same style of stories I do in the like the positivity, not to say that, like you said, the good guys can still die, but overall, yeah. if yeah. they die, they don't die for nothing. Like I'll give right. you the perfect example. Right. Have you have you seen uh, Serenity where Wash dies? They had a good chance to make that death mean something. Like he died heroically saving the sh everyone else, even though it cost him his life. And then it was like, mm, nope, they just crashed and randomly. The, the you know, I hate to give you spoilers, but like they they threw away what could have been a grandiose like huge death scene that was momentous and they just wasted yeah. it. And so I don't mind when main characters die, but you got to make it mean something. Like I get in combat sometimes, like I lost my best friend escorting a convoy, no joke of bubble wrap and office chairs. Like in the grander scheme of things that meant nothing to the war effort. Had that been, right. I don't know, beans and bullets to the middle of uh, besieged troops in Bastogne, like that would have been entirely different. At least it meant something, right? And so I try to approach yeah. fiction the same way. Like if I, if I want my characters to die, like sometimes people just die. Like I get that, but but make it to characters you don't really care as much about. For the main characters or main secondary characters, if they die, make it mean something. And that's one of the things. So it's almost like Stargate or Star Trek or even G.I. Joe, where they end every episode laughing, that episodic positivity that you get. Mm -hmm. But the risks mm -hmm. of George R.R. R. Martin, because 
you know, good triumphing over evil has costs, right? Like I, I would right, see absolutely. that as the perfect kind of pairing. Uh, yeah, but like I said, I just, to like some of those honor codes, right? Like a, an yeah. honorable death, like um, Beowulf and uh, Ronin and like all of that stuff. Like there is honor of the Vikings, right? They wanted to die in the battlefield and fighting for something. There's honor and death. And even today, how we live our lives can imply like and inform the way we die. Like, yeah, it could be tragic and senseless with an accident, like, you know, people running red lights, texting on their phone, whatever, you could say, oh, that was senseless. But because of how an individual lives their lives can, you know, inform that, that death. And so, um, and it still leaves you with that sense of like pride in the, in that character and in that moment and what they did to spur on the greater good, even with their death. Uh, yeah, it's a, it reminds me of that quote from Gladiator, which everyone quotes, where uh, Maximus is in the arena talking to um, Marcus Aurelius, I believe, uh, and mm -hmm. he says essentially, "What we do in life echoes in eternity." Was the message, and so that's that mm -hmm. comes back to like making it matter. I think I think that matters more than people realize, because until I started thinking about things like you were saying from the marketing angle, you don't always realize why you like what you like. Like I, I've never had to do the right to market because what I read and what I write is also what other people like, but I never really thought why until you start trying to come up with your marketing plan, right? Like I get, you know, that, but that, that sense where in the end, the good guys win because sometimes in life, you know, you get robbed and nothing happens to the bad guy because reasons. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that can be kind of gloomy and you want a, a better outcome sometimes in fiction than reality can give you. So I think I think that's where that right. stuff comes into play, but uh, yeah, we are at the twenty five so minute mark. Go oh, I was gonna say, okay. no, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say it's a whole left brain, right brain thing. So your left brain might know intuitively what you like and what those stories are about, and and uh, how to communicate them and how to make them happen naturally in your writing. It's the right brain, right brain, who's trying to define those terms in order yeah. to market it creatively, which goes back to the left brain. But it, yeah, absolutely, and that's why. Um, well, uh, where Jonathan and I kind of complement each other in that whole left brain, right brain, like ping ponging between us, though that ethos and how to not be too on the nose as we communicate it. Because I wouldn't be like, the world is dark. You need some levity. Uh, don't worry, the good guys win. It's a good time. Plus, you know, there's lots of action and a ton of combat. You'll like this book. But it goes back to the whole creative aspect of like, okay, well, like you can't tell the person that's why they want this story, but they can relay the emotional aspect of why they would enjoy that story. And it goes that left brain, right brain is also why they tell if you're for the authors among us, it's why they tell you that you can't always take on face value of someone's review, because they mm -hmm. might not always mm -hmm. know why they didn't like it. So if they sometimes why they say things just felt off, what they're trying to tell you is the pacing is wrong. And I, I couldn't tell you on paper what the formula is for good pacing. I just do it because I read so much. It just it comes intuitively. I don't have to think about it. And that's the mm -hmm. same kind of stuff. Like you, you know, some things subconsciously almost sometimes just from that repetitive action. It's that muscle memory with your brain. It's, it's how, you yeah. know, it's why they train yeah. you by rote in martial arts and in the military, because you can yeah. do things at a certain level where you're no longer thinking about them. In fact, if you tried to think about it, you could forget why and, you know, 
mess your mojo up because you've changed your body not to think about certain things, just to do it. And I think, I think you do that when you read a lot. Yep, absolutely. I'm wearing my karate shirt right now. And that's exactly what my sensei says. Like, don't think about it, just move. Like, just do the move. You know this already. And so, um, and yeah, we practice the same thing over and over. And and then why they take just the training and the forms and then move you over to when we're sparring. And they're like, you know, you're, you got two minutes and I just want you to practice these moves and counter moves without thinking about it. So it's not a drill like, okay, now you do your moves, now you counter. It's like you don't know and your body is acting and reacting intuitively and it's it's just such it's a very cool thing but then there are those people who have lots of information and books on on what pacing should be from a technical standpoint too and i'm not i'm not denoting that and i've even used some of them to sort of help me understand why i was doing things but people who who may not have that intuition yet and would like to know more like okay from the right brain like so what is that (laughs) so for the right i mean i was thinking people weren't trying to get that Mm -hmm. I was the kid who got in trouble in the third grade for sneaking, sneaking adult books. Like I was reading Stephen King in the third grade. Well, you got to define uh, adult my t- books in third grade, Jr. What adult books this were you is, taking into your third grade uh, class? I was reading It in the third grade. Okay, grown Stephen up King's books. It. Grown-up books. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm sorry. We yeah. had this conversation pre-show too. Yeah. When you say adult in something, it implies, you're right, you're right. Uh, I was mm-hmm. reading books not written for young adults or even young people because okay. I wasn't even a young adult in third grade. Uh, and so you, when you read that much for that long, um, you, you realize you're probably not the target audience as far as your your into intuitive understanding of certain structures because you've just read so many books. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's also why some authors have trouble just as a general rule is because the average person isn't multi-genre. Like the average reader will read one, one narrow genre and that's it. If you're the kind of person that will read anything and everything, you're already a statistical outlier. And that's oh, the thing I have yeah. to remind myself with marketing is because, like, I'm not normal. Like, I'm just as happy reading, you know, uh, nonfiction as I am fiction. Like, I, I read all of it. And, and that's yeah. not normal. We uh, oh, we interviewed. Okay. That's a good point. Back when we were, <laughs> when we were still sci-fi shenanigans, we interviewed uh, Kristen Catherine Rush, who uh, has been around for a few minutes. Uh, and that's one of the things we talked about in the pre-show is, is how much, you know, by reading everything, we uh, we make ourselves outliers, and then add to that anyone who came up in the digital age. Now it's so much easier to narrow down to. I just want to read books about planting potatoes. I don't care about the carrots or the radishes. Just give me the potatoes. And it's easier to do that now with online stuff than it used to be at the library, where it's like, well, I've read all of that. Let me try this new genre that looks okayish because I haven't read it yet. Um, and yeah. so I think that that's only gotten worse in the digital age. That that sort I mean, of it's that we're feeding genre our own loyalty. Algorithm. Yeah, basically. But uh, this is us, if you haven't noticed, dear listener, with the uh, last episode that just aired, uh, the Fireside Chat with uh, with Nick and I, we're trying to do more off-the-cuff interviews and less rote. So you will have noticed that we didn't use the formula with Jen, mostly because we've been friends so long that I forgot we had the formula for this one. So we just started talking. <laughs> but one of the staples of this podcast is the religion question, and that will never go away. So are you ready for this, ma'am? Uh, All right. Warehouse 13. Battlestar Galactica or Lost in Space? This changed. And we, we mix it up because you've been on before. You've heard the other ones. Oh, I came prepared for the other ones. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to go with 
lost in space, I think. It feels, I mean, they're all adventurous, but it, that one definitely feels more like an adventure and um, yeah, I mean, they're all have, have risk and they all have, yeah, I just, I liked, I liked, I liked the family. I liked, uh, and then it could be my season of life too. Like, I think I would have said Battlestar Galactica previous to the season of life, but yeah, I'm gonna go with Lost in Space. Okay, so which Lost in Space, the one that, um, the movie that came out in the late 90s, the uh, original black and white series or the Netflix series? Um, I'm gonna go again, season of life with the more recent Netflix series, but I also think that like the film before that um, kind of like informed this, like, you know what I mean? Like, yes. It's kind of like you can't appreciate so, one as much if you hadn't watched the the previous, but for this one, yeah, I just like the, the family interactions that adds a different dynamic. And I get, you know, that there's like that whole family dynamic within some of the others, but, um, but just knowing like, the risk involved and, and that fear there's like those other fears you have as parents and it's an adventure as a spouse and and making those hard decisions um and then seeing them succeed and seeing them shine with their knowledge and their gifts and um and that's kind of like life right like we're kind of going through and trying different things if if you're going to have that adventure and you're going to get lost sometimes yeah, I think I think I like all three for different reasons. The original one, because it was sort of groundbreaking in its time for the, the concept yes. of space exploration. It was definitely targeted to young boys, I think, as the audience. So Will Robinson and his robot were the main characters. I like mm -hmm. that the movie that came in the 90s and then the Netflix series let Penny have as much of a role. She was as much a character as will was i like that and they flushed the rest of the family out in a ways because the sisters in the original were just eye candy like they were there to wear the i guess spandex polyester whatever that was it's hard to tell in old black and whites but like they were just eye candy they didn't play as much a role in the plot it was mostly will robinson the robot and the pesky scientist and their shenanigans and then the family was just sort of the backdrop yeah but like i said I will never fault it when you target to the audience you're trying to get. Like sometimes something isn't bad just because you're not the target audience, right? Like there, there's right. plenty of stuff that that's good book qualitatively. I'm not the target audience and I don't read it. Um, like I'm not reading the Amish romance. Just not my thing. Right. Um, needs, no, needs absolutely. More guns. Um, and coffee, more guns and coffee. Um, but so like I, I, I like each of them for their own reasons, but I did like the way they also did the doctor character. Like they gender swapped it, but they did it in a way that, that worked for the plot. It didn't feel like it was just checking a box when it feels mm -hmm. like it's checking a box. It feels cheap. And I, I tend to not like it. Uh, Battlestar Galactica did that too with the reboot where they made Starbuck a woman. And then her relationship to the family was that much richer because she had dated the younger brother that died who Incidentally, she was his piloting instructor and passed him even though he wasn't good enough because daddy, like all of that mattered more later because you knew all that mm -hmm. backstory that was different. Like I, I didn't have a problem with that. So if they did it right in those two instances, I think. So I really liked yeah, all of them for I, different reasons. Yep, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. If you were going to, um, we're going to make those kinds of changes. They need to have a, just like in anything you're developing, right? 
it needs to have a reason that adds to the goal of your your work, your IP, whatever the project. And so if you're going to swap somebody, is it to check a box or are you going to, you know, give us character a backstory or flesh them out more like how are they moving this project <laughs> forward? How are they enhancing at every level, every character change, every uh, character addition, all of that needs to be uh, a plus. It needs to be plusing that viewer experience and not to be clever, not to have something shiny you've always wanted to do as a director or writer, not to check some sort of agenda or like, or, you know, contrarily, like go against an agenda at the sake of what the ethos of that project is about. Yeah, like you said, I, I don't, I like I said, I don't want preaching even when I agree with you. Uh, Terry, Terry Pratchett, I think, no, Terry mm. Goodkin did the Sword of Truth series. Terry Goodkin, mm. he is very mm. much influenced by his love of Ayn Rand and his libertarianisms. <laughs> I don't disagree with a lot of what he wrote, but towards the later books in that series, it started to get so preachy. And I'm like, dude, the, just give us the, the wizards and the swords and the Mord Sith, right? Like, I, yes, I don't want to get preached yes. at. If we want to get preached at, we have churches for that, right? Like, just tell me a fun story. I feel that way whether I agree with the person or not. So I, I like when you make changes because it serves the plot. Even if it's just I'm putting my own spin on it, that's good enough reason, but not just to check a box. Right. Uh, and okay. I even, I yeah. like it when they give you- more Anne Ran. I'd go sit and read Anne Ran. <laughs> Right. And I, I like, like, I don't have a problem with the concept of, you know, the strong female protagonist or antagonist. Just make it believable. I want to say, I'll give you an example of someone who does that, right? Katie Cross writes uh, a lot of young female heroines, but she always takes into the fact that the average female is smaller than the average guy. And so if you're going to do a fighter, like she's going to fight differently to fight that guy who's bigger than her. And she doesn't give you the 12 year old who's just magically kicking the butt of 30 year old warriors who spent their entire adult life training to kill people. And suddenly she just, you know, for reasons can kill. No, when, when Katie writes it, they, it has cost to make that win and they adjust strategy accordingly. I think that's how you do it. Like with anything, you got to make it make sense to reality, not just wishful thinking. Um, and I, I like yeah. it. So I don't mind changes as long as it takes into account sort of reality as you envision it in your universe. Like that's the great thing about sci-fi power armor is the great equalizer. It right. I think that is such a key thing too, because uh, what make it make sense? It, it's almost like eighty percent of our. You know, you could get crazy with twenty percent if you can keep me grounded with eighty percent, right? So, uh, going back to what you're saying, like there's the reality in the way that males and females are are built and constructed. So, um. Yeah, and anyone who's spent any amount of time in combat or hand-to-hand -hand training knows, like, you're not just, like, what it means to take a punch to the face, what, it, like, the disorientation or, like, what it means to have a six-foot-five man with, like, double the arm breach as you clock you upside the head. You're not going to just, like, go all Scarlett Johansson on him and, like, climb up and knock him out. Like, you're, it's going to be like a fly. You know what I mean? Like... So I could really appreciate what Katie does there and, and some of those characters. And to your point, if within sci-fi, create your world, construct your rules, and abide by those rules. At least I have a sense of, of where we're going and, and how things work. Um, so that way, instead of my mind being distracted by trying to figure it all out, I'm just enjoying the ride, you know, and I'm thinking about yeah. those next 
cool plot points and I all have, that. So mm -hmm. I I approach it. So my because I was infantry, but I was de deployed at squad level, attached to a transportation unit, escorting their convoys because you know we were trained with them all the heavy weapons and stuff. My squad leader that I worked with, uh, well, the squad leader, she wasn't my direct squad leader because I was in the gun truck squad, but the, the one I worked with as far as convoy commander, her and I worked hand in hand together because she was the convoy commander and I was a security commander. So in theory, when combat started, I could relieve her and take over. From a career perspective, I have to live with her when that was over. So unless she's really messing mm -hmm. up, you just don't do that. But like mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time talking and one of the, she's the one who got me into running long distances for like just to clear your head. She was a cross country runner in college. And when we were talking just in combat, cause we were doing some of the, the pre-deployment training, she was, she always told me, she's like, JR, I have to be smarter than my opponent because I can't be stronger than them. You're speaking of the average guy. She's like, on a bronze only, I lose. When it comes to brain, I can outthink them and I can do it quicker than them. And that's how I win. And that kind of approach, like understanding realities of biology. Now, again, you add aliens, you add nanites, you add any kind of magic or meta or, you know, scientific mystery, you can equalize it. I'm not saying you can't, but just, yeah. you got to make it believable. Right. And, and so right. I use her as my litmus test when it comes to strong female characters, because I've never met a woman that was more badass than her. So um, that's, awesome. that, that, that's how I sort of do school. it. I, yeah. I wrestled in high school and I, you know, we were in the same weight class, but I was constructed quite differently from the same freshman sophomore or eighth grade of the same weight class so like yeah. you said like we i it couldn't it, yeah it just it wasn't the same like it it wasn't the same and i you know people are like all oh, things equal it's like man i'm gonna bend and i'm gonna move and i'm constructed in very different ways than that guy is both of us training right both of us doing all that i'm not saying like i just stepped in and presumably no you were both in like, good oh, shape right right and, you know we're both adolescent and all that but like the body is different the density the muscles the way things are, are and you know and it's beautiful it's a wonderful thing it's it's an awesome thing because um how we could all complement each other but there's there there's yes. reality and so um yeah like yeah exactly what you're saying there, what, so, that's one of the awesome things about sci-fi is because you can equalize with these really in these really creative ways all things being equal, wrestling uh, in high school taught me that sometimes it doesn't matter who's better. Like I was never, I started wrestling in high school. Most people started in middle school. So I was already behind the eight ball. And I remember the coach always told me I didn't have to learn all the hundred thousand moves everyone else could do. I only had to learn two or three for each position and then do them perfectly. Because at that point, it's just a matter of can you take a punch while you wait for, well, not punch, it's wrestling, but can you right. take the pain while you wait for the other guy to mess up? Cause he only, you only have to get it right once if you do it perfectly. Yeah. And so that was, that was my claim to fame. Not that I was better wrestler from a purely like skills perspective. Most of them were better than me, but I just held on longer and was willing to suck it up longer. Cause I was more stubborn than them in the end. Uh, I actually <laughs> wrestled heavyweight in high school. I ended up losing a bunch of weight in my senior year to get ready for, for the military. But uh, I ended up breaking the state record for the longest uh, wrestling match in state history at the time. Now, this was wow. 98. I don't know if it still holds. And the website that used to track that stuff is no longer it, – it's not up anymore. So I don't know if they even track that. But we went into quadruple overtime in wrestling at the, uh, at the regionals. And I lost, not because the guy was a better wrestler than me. Because at that point, you've kind of proven you're pretty equal. He just wanted it more in the end. And in that fourth quarter – 
that motivation. And that, even though I lost, I'm a, I figure if you're going to be on the losing end of a record, I'd rather it be the longest match than the shortest one. Cause that kid was also mm -hmm. on my team wrestling the, the flyweight. <laughs> he got pinned in half oh. a second. Oh, poor kid. Um, yeah. But uh, it was by a girl too. <laughs> uh, so he had to live that one down twice. Oh, but wow. um, yeah. Yeah. But that, so it's, it's one of those things where you just, that is it is, but it's, it's one of those things where you realize when you do that hand to hand stuff for real, how much just grit and dedication can carry you. Like you still have to have skills. Don't get me wrong. Like, I don't care how dedicated you are. If you're going up against, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in a bench contest when he's at his prime, like he's still kicking your butt, right? Like right. skills yeah. matter at, at a certain point, but anyway. Yes, All right. So this is the fun part of the conversations is we go far few and we go afield a lot from where we intended, but I have to ask the last religion question. And then we're going to talk about this Kickstarter. But because we're polytheistic, and these were picked especially for you, Jennifer, okay. Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, or his Dark Material series, which is Golden Compass is a part of that series, if you're more right, familiar with right, that right. one. I am. I, I am, uh, am going to go with... I, I guess Lord of the Rings. Don't get me wrong. I love Narnia. I love C.S. Lewis. I, I just think, um, yeah. I'm I pick them because I pick them because they were all examples of people. Like they were very religious. They wrote intending to um, teach the, the underlying premises of their faith. They were. I think they were all. In fact, they were all Christian. I think uh, Luke. I think Tolkien was Catholic, and the other ones were. Protestant, I think. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I studied them in my English late class. But but they all approach teaching you about their morals by not slamming it in your face. They went in the back door with the with the fantasy kind of adventure story. And I so I thought yeah. when when I was interviewing you, I figured that was the perfect setup for you. <laughs> Just because you know that, that's kind of what you got you and Jonathan try to do, right? Like teach good messages. All right. You know, so it's not so like didactic in that way. It's like the good messages. It goes back to what you're saying. Like it comes from intuition. Like this is what I know. So this is what I write. Uh, so that's like, in case anyone's like, well, these are what are these like Christian speculative fiction? Like no, it's just it, it, it it's only there if you're really looking for it in that way. But. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's what they it's what they knew. Um, a side note on Tolkien, though, is that uh, this past year I was doing a bunch of studies for um, my daughter's schooling on um, a composer from Finland, and uh, one of the things his claim to fame was like it was right around the time when Finland was starting to get its national identity. Uh, from Russia okay. and from Sweden. And so one of the things that some of their scholars did was go back through like the villages and the outlying lands and get a collection of their original tales, which is to us might be like fairy tales, um, but the lore, the, the national lore, because when Christianity was introduced to that land, a lot of that lore was suppressed. Um, and so, you know, it did inform their sort of like, what you might call their natural religion or paganism or folklore, what you know, however you want to call it. Um, but a lot of that is actually where Tolkien got some of his characters for the Cimmerillion. So name for name on a couple of them, or like mirroring um, part of like one of the hero's journey. And um, so as I was researching and come like, whoa, this is really cool. 
And, um, you know, looking into it and reading, there's a quote from his daughter who called out like the, the music from the comp composer and a couple of his, um, they're called, I'm gonna remember the name. Anyway, it's a sound poem. So it's not just like a symphony for music, but like it's actually using the music to tell a story. Uh, and um, and it was uh, part of Tolkien's favorite songs. And so I was like, or pieces. And I was like, that is so cool. Like I did not expect to find that. And so I think that's for me, another of the reasons that Tolkien won out this time, because it's really fresh. <laughs> Really fresh. No, I, I get that. And what you're talking about is it's not quite oral history, but he's they're they're recording the oral tales of the mm -hmm. of the local legends and stuff. Um, I mm -hmm. have participated with the, uh, the Library of Congress's oral history project. Basically, the idea is to record those stories before the people that know them pass on. Um, now, yes. oral history yes. specifically is is the tales of people that actually served. Um, I actually sent the links to Jonathan to get him see if he could get his dad to tell his tales, tell his stories about when he was in Vietnam. Um, but wow. sometimes a hard ask. Um, it's been yeah. a couple of years, so I don't know if he if his. But I mean, it's it's hard to talk about some of those. But that's the kind of stuff where they record that. There's a different name for it when you're recording like myths and legend and lore. Um, but it's still mm -hmm. definitely the oral tradition. Oral traditions. There we go. You're starting to record yeah. the oral traditions because at a certain point in time, the people that know all those tales go away, and then what happens if they don't? And that's why it's important to pass that kind of stuff off to the kids too. You know, mm -hmm. but. All right, so because we are um, at the wow, it's been forty nine <laughs> minutes. Uh, we're gonna put up, so much fun. Yeah, we're gonna put up the uh, Forsaken Mercenary. So, what would your elevator since you're sponsoring this episode? What would your elevator pitch for the uh, Forsaken Mercenaries be? Yeah, um, he's the deadliest man in the galaxy. If he could only remember. And uh, some of his dark past could be his undoing, but there's still a chance okay. for redemption. Mm -hmm. That is definitely um, intriguing. All right, so we brought you here um, to. So first off, that art that we've got on the screen that came from the Kickstarter, which is what brought you here. What is the uh, the story behind that art? Like, is that the main character? Is that like a side character? Is it just stock art? Um. Do you mean the main character like a photo of the actor, or do you mean like is it intended? No, no, no. On the screen, the the art yeah. that you gave us, mm -hmm. which is on the Kickstarter page when you go and look at it, like, uh -huh. uh, is that the main character, or is that just you know an artist rendering of of the the armor? Like, what's the story behind this art we're looking at? Um, AI. <laughs> it's oh, okay. So it's the, yeah, it's supposed to be the main character, Daniel Hunt um and like uh, it's on a future it's a near future so like maybe 80 years into the future so on on the moon in a moon colony and so uh it's got a little bit of that cyberpunk element and those high rise like stacked because we're not going wide we're going tall and deep in our in our construct and um you know for saving space and everything and so um yeah there are some descriptions in the book of you know who the character is or kind of what he reminisces and you know as every author might do especially when he's very visual like jonathan he sees the story in his mind as he writes he i know more about like who he saw so like a, uh, a young clint eastwood a young um man with no name if you would uh so uh that's kind of we use scott as the inspiration and i had probably too much fun 
with uh, AI art to kind of get something rendered. Uh, because we had a hand-drawn, uh, some line art, but I wanted to make sure that the viewers understood like it wasn't going to be an animated series we're developing, but rather a live action. So that's how we came up with this here. So that is the pitch for this uh, for the series writ large. And we will link to um, Jonathan's website where he, he links all the different books in the Forsaken Mercenary series so you can mm -hmm. read about the world where this story taking place. Now, the Forsaken Mercenary Kickstarter, the, the sci-fi thriller short film, is that going to be in the universe or actually trying to tell the tale of the books? Okay, so the short right now is looking to be about 15 to 20 minutes um, because it's it's a dual purpose. One, it's a short film by name, so it has to like be short, um, but it also could be a proof of concept so we could take it to studios or other actors and additional investors down the line and say like, maybe we want to do a feature. Do you, this could be the next expanse. Maybe it's episodic. So um, that's the purpose that it serves. And if anyone's wondering like more about that, how that all works, it's bananas. And I'd be more than happy to share though. And so um, we want to get into genre specific film festivals. And I don't know if people know this, but John Wick, when it was first made, was an independent film. No major studio wanted to pick it up. Uh, Keanu Reeves was not hot at that time. He'd come off two flops, or like um, box office flops, if you would. I think everyone listening to this probably enjoyed those films. And um, as a first time director, he'd only been a second unit director and he was coming on to do this. And the guy's background was in stunt coordination. And oh man, he is so good. And the idea, and I think it was based off of a book or a story but it had a completely different name and it was the character was much older uh, john wick in there and um they're like he's gonna kill 86 people because of a dog but his wife dies of natural causes like they couldn't get their minds wrapped around it until they saw it at a film festival and then that's when Lionsgate was like mine <laughs> so uh we plan on going to some of those same film festivals as john wick did originally and so this is going to be following true to story because it's a kickstarter campaign and it is the readers and you know fringe fans of supporters that are contributing to this to bring this to life we wanted to stick true to the characters and the story that they've loved these past years um so you know we're not changing who daniel as person is we're telling his sort of origin story um how the very opening of the film and it's a complete arc but as every good storyteller does, you know, having some um, open loops so that way it can continue to the future and makes you wonder for more. But it's a story it, of redemption. Mm -hmm. But is it telling? So the Four Circuit Mercenary series has several books mm -hmm. in it. I think nine, if I remember correctly. Um, Twelve. No, he, 12. Okay. I knew there was a lot. It's hard to keep track after yeah. a while. Um, I understand. But so he's got, and it's got a larger arc. So is this going to follow the books or is it going to be like before the books started? Is it going to branch out and be its own thing? So for instance, the hundred book is largely different than the hundred TV series. The books are good. I read them. The show oh. was good. It was different, but the properties, no, there were changes. This is, it's the same. It's like the first okay. arc of the first book. So with, you know, within the book, it's like that first main arc of um, like, I don't know, the first four chapters or something like that. And there's a pre, like a book zero. So we're kind of encapsulating all of that 
in this film. Um, but it, it's definitely, it'd be like um, before you get to that like scene, major scene change in the book where all of a sudden he goes to earth and he's on this new part of his adventure. This is all, in, all taking place on the moon, um, the first part of the book. Okay. Um, so first, you know, it's a Kickstarter. So if you, you back the Kickstarter, dear listener, and it gets to the whatever the bench, what is your benchmark for you guys? Because we're recording this before it's live, so I can't look. So, yeah. No so what problem. is your goal? Forget people can't see. So our goal to start is $20,000. We want to get that within the first week. And then anything from there, we are offering additional stretch goals um, that would just allow us to do like more of a CGI, um, go after bigger name actors. So like depending on the budget of your film, because we will be another SAG, this will be another SAG film. We could do that. Uh, we have um, filled out all the necessary paperwork with our last film. And so we're gonna do that this time because we wanna make sure we're true uh, to the performers and giving uh, higher caliber performers the opportunity to do it if they are union. But we also get to compensate them in it in another way uh, with the, their um, not only residuals but it's um, pension, so things like that. It's like a, so. Uh, for, so so the, the more money I, you come up with, the higher like tier actor performer we can get to this. All right. So for those of us who aren't in union states, um, SAG <laughs> oh, is the Screen you. Actors Guild. Um, what do you mean like the union requirement? Is it sort of like CIFWA? It has to be a qualifying film for them to be able to do it? Or I don't know how all that works for the Hollywood section because theirs is a unique yeah. industry uh, unto Thank itself. Thank you for bringing that up because it totally, yeah, we're in California. So like everything has <laughs> got all these different things to jump through. I mean, yeah, even so Starbucks there have unions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. I don't think the restaurant servers do have unions though, but I think they do on the East Coast. That was a thing. Um, so uh, the requirements. So like if you think about studios in the early days and they owned the actors and they could tell them what they could do and what they couldn't do, um, all of that kind of stuff, like they forced some actresses to have abortions because it didn't fit with their image and all of that stuff. They didn't have protection because they were, you know, at the leisure at the uh, hand of these studios. So they have um, and like crazy hour days, not necessarily safe environments. So they that's why they unionized. And so by having union now, it just protects them. Like if we want to participate, we have to follow those rules that are set by the union and the benefits to us is that people with more experience and um, they get they, they are going to be union and they would be more inclined to work with us knowing hey we're independent but we're still going to treat you right like we're still going to keep you safe we're still going to abide like especially with covid uh, when the last film we filmed was in um oh gosh 2001 early 2001 maybe so we had to like there are sag has covid rules which i think were just lifted for 2023 but you know they as a performer if you're going to go out and be on the set you want to know are these people beholden to a certain safety standard to a certain production condition and so that's one of the benefits of sag another benefit of sag mutual benefit um for us so yeah, we, we're hoping yeah. to get some good names, uh, recognizable names from the genres in here, some like Star Trek people or some action people. Um, yeah, so that's where where we're doing. 
right now. Our last film won a few film festival awards. And then our cinematographer and co-director, he's also award-winning. His films have appeared on Dust. He has a film, a Civil War era film coming out soon. It's already been uh, pre-approved and pre-accepted into several film festivals. So the professional quality is always something that surprises people because you hear indie film, you think indie backyard uh, student film, and those are very different. Like we are renting cameras from the same places in Hollywood and Burbank, just up the freeway um, and in and, and filming in some of the same locations as like uh, you would see even on Super Bowl commercials and, and films and like coming out of studios. And I think um, this is being recorded in um, July of 2023. So if you're listening to it years later, uh, this is also the year where all of the um, Rust uh, indie film stuff happened where they accidentally shot because of poor prop management. One of the film directors, there's a lot of controversy behind it. We don't need to rehash that. That's not our bag. But I will say uh, they're definitely looking all of the uh, oversight boards to include health inspectors and all of that are definitely looking a lot more closely at indie films now than they used to as well. Um, so I think that's, it's important that you guys are taking those safety precautions. I mean, obviously it's different when you're not using real guns like you would in a Western uh, because your blasters aren't actually shooting, you know, plaza raid, whatever, insert science fiction <laughs> tropes, um, mm -hmm. you know, but the, still the idea that you want to be safe for, for everyone involved, I think is important. Um, especially since yeah. most of these companies that make film are fly by night in that they exist for the movie and then they close and then they reopen for another a new f company for another movie, which means if you do get hurt, who do you sue? Because the company doesn't exist anymore. And so it becomes yeah, more important. An interesting thing that we've come across is like, okay, learning, learning the film, right? As indie publishers, <laughs> you learn one way and then the more money involved, the more risk. And so what that's one of the things with this with this kind of like say like a not a, a feature film that we could sell to a studio or distributor, right? Um, the contracts have to be super clean and everything is not built by our production company, but a new LLC owns the IP and everything that goes with it. They're the manager of all the funds and the budget and they're the signatory on um, all the contracts. And so uh, yeah, so when somebody buys it, like a distributor is like, I want to buy this or some studios like we're going to own this. Um, they're buying that entire business and everything that comes with it. And that could be if so, if there are issues, they don't want that liability. MGM is MGM still around, you know, whoever like the big studio Paramount doesn't want that liability. Universal doesn't want that liability. Um, Disney doesn't want that. So they have to think about all of that. And to your point, Jer, if nobody buys it and it's dissolved, then there's nobody for their like beholden for that responsibility to hopefully you know, nobody gets hurt or whatever it is. That's one of the things yeah. about having an existing IP. That's another mitigated liability because then people aren't, um, you can't say like, oh, that was my idea. It's like, there are 12 books. They have sold over 200,000 copies across 12 countries in multiple languages. It's an audio. It has you know, like 20,000 or 15,000 five-star reviews, there is no question who owns this intellectual property, who came up with all of these stories. So um, that's an, another thing, like the fan base, the reader base, the support base has been huge on this. And again, like going back as we're preparing everything for the film and seeing what everyone has said about reading the stories, I am 
I'm so excited to put this um, to put this out there. It's the stuff that we love, you know, like a real gritty kind of a jerk of a hero, but he's got those redeeming qualities, kind of like a Wolverine, right? Like he's still. He but he's not an anti-hero. Where, no, where they turn no. the, the hero on his tropes and they make him someone you hate. Like I hate it when I'm reading. Um, and I've read some grimdark that was like this. And I've, I've, there are other genres that do it too. But like when you hate the good guys as much as the bad guys. Like, no. you know, that, no, that's kind of hard. Black and white. He's black and white. Yeah, he's no, not I, a I, hero. This would be a yeah. like, He doesn't want to be the hero, which makes him a better hero. <laughs> I think, but yeah, and you know, we've got a nice array of characters. Uh, I was doing research on like, what would it be like to be in, on the moon? And so I was reading this NASA document article as people do at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And Wait, um, other people don't do that? <laughs> I, I thought everybody does. <laughs> and um, it, yeah, they were saying like, it would take us, I think it was like 20 years from now, we will have the technology to send to the moon to begin digging and building um, a domed city. And it would take those robots about 15 years until people could live there. So like doing the calculations and all that, it's like the near future and you're just like, I don't wanna be part of that first iteration. Like maybe I'll be part of the second or fifth domed city. Um, and so that kind of like inf influenced me and in how I was thinking about like, what would this look like? When we're talking about like from an art direction, like it's very utilitarian. There's not much extra uh, uh, artistic intricate details in this world because if it's not serving a purpose, then they're not bringing it in just for fun to this off planet. So um, yeah, that'll be really cool to see come to life and that we can do that service. It kind of reminds me of like B.B. Larson's Nah, B.B. Larson's World Series, you know, how they're like constructing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they have that spray. It's like a cement spray and you can wait for it to. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Everyone really, uh, quick Crete, plastic Crete. Like it, you put the word Crete, C R E T E, at the end of a word. Mm -hmm. And the understanding is it's it's some new agey, spacey, you know, concrete. Concrete mixture thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that instantly hardens in space. Like I, I and it's, it's got versatility. I mean, if you think about it, they've got AI 3D, AI controlled 3D printers printing with cement, building um, homes, um, like structures that people could in theory live. In. Obviously, if it's cement only, you're going to want to insulate it and stuff. But but they're already right. testing the kind of technology that is controlled remotely that we would need to live on Mars. Like they're already starting. Um, yeah. So the, the technology, I actually wrote a book that uh, that's pulled because I'm going to turn it into a series. It was a standalone where my premise in the world building that never showed in book one of the uh, the race to space and the FTL didn't start with NASA and it didn't start with the military. It started with uh, them putting a colony up there so they could have the real housewives of Mars or housewives of the moon or whatever. <laughs> Um, of Lunar City, like the idea, because that's where you're going to get people to care, right? That was, of course, when I was outlining yeah. that, The Real Housewives of Atlanta was really the big hit show, right? But like okay, the idea like that... 13 seasons or something like that. I just I, Yeah, different people, I think. I don't know. I don't follow it, but I just, you see it on the, the snippets. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, so, so they're never going to get their feelings hurt. But yeah, so like I, I get the idea that we're going to go to the moon. I think it's inevitable. I don't understand why we don't go there first instead of trying to go straight to Mars. Because in theory, if something goes wrong, you could get help there quick enough that people have a chance of living, 
right? And supplies yeah. don't take yeah. as long. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, I can see that. Um, I will say, we're going to circle back real quick where you mentioned Dust. Dust Studios is a YouTube channel. I share their content all the time if you're in Scott Bartlett's group. Uh, I share it in the Sci-Fi Shana- um, Blasters and Blades podcast. I always dock another mm-hmm. drink. I keep forgetting the new name. Uh, it's only been three years, right? Give me another decade. I'll finally get it right. Um, but Sci-Fi Shenanigans just rolls off the tongue so well, though. Um, I'm pretty proud of that marketing. I just We wanted to branch out for more than just sci-fi. Um, but so like dust put some really good indie films that in some ways are cleaner stories and they're better told and they're better produced than some of what Hollywood is doing. And it's, it's just people that are passionate about it. And I'm like, I couldn't tell you how many times I'm like, no, 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 I'm not done with the story. yet. come back. I want more. Right. They're just, they're short. So, yeah. And, but they, they do such a good job. Like they're, because they're fans of the genre, they have that intuitive sense of what she like we're going to have an ai uh in here an ai like a augmented but for like um like your heads up display kind of like cortana or jarvis or friday or what have you and so uh at one point there was discussion of like should we cut that and we're like no um people love that trope i love that trope like it's very natural expectation of what to encounter into in this world and so um that's what the people who are up putting content or having content available on dust they know the tropes in the genre because they're fans of it it's the stuff that they love and it's not about what some executive producers want from hollywood because because this is like i don't understand this and how is this going to sail and i don't have any data to support that like I get it. That's what they're doing with their business. But as a filmmaker, and it's like we're trying to do it to get in here. It's like we just want some good, fun content. It's not agenda driven for good or bad or otherwise for left or right or middle or up or down. It's just like let's get a good, fun story in here that's exciting that we can watch. You could potentially watch with your whole family. We've had people reach out and say like, oh, my teenage son, like my son's reading this for the second time through. It's like you get a kid a boy, a teenage boy to read this, like one, it's clean enough for him to read, but two, like boys, like it's a hard thing to get kids to read. You know, that's a huge thing in schools. And so having someone read for fun, that it's not a school assignment, there's no report on it and write a paper. Like that's, that's what we are excited to, to put out there. So what are some of the stretch goals that you guys have? You said your goal is 20,000 for this Kickstarter that's going to fund the production and everything that goes behind it um, for this short film. Um, You said it's a thriller. So presumably it's going to be like high intensity action and and intrigue Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because thriller generally denotes a lot of action. Um, But more, I think a lot of thriller is more than mill sci-fi. The action is also as much in your head as it is on the screen or on the page. Like, Mm With the military sci- with sci-fi and the mil- mil sci-fi, like it's the action is the combat. When you talk about thrillers, a lot of times it's the action can be the the fist fights and the intrigue of the spies, like all of that. You know, where it's as much a mental thing as it is as just you know shooting it out with with guns at high noon. So, with this one, like uh, assuming it's going to be high action, uh, would the stretch goals be like I don't know extra stunts or like what what are you looking to do for yeah, for the stretch so, goals. And, 
So the goals, the script currently, the script goals go all the way up to like 85,000. So I know that's like a huge jump between 20,000, 85,000. But if we get up to like 8,500,000, that's going to allow us to like bring in uh, additional and more experienced or seasoned stunt coordinators. Like we're going to have a stunt coordinator in his team. We're going to have what's called pre-production time where the performers or the actors are going to be going through and rehearsing those stunts and we're going to be getting like making sure we're planning ahead for the angles like that was one thing that's huge to us like jonathan and i are such weirdos we love action scenes and we'll send each other youtube video clips of like our favorite action scenes and like i really love some of the stuff in the latest um i think it's amazon prime reacher series uh featuring alan richardson i i'm a real big fan I didn't realize this until this past year. Like I really love thrillers. And so um, so watching some of those moves, again, John Wick, Jason Bourne, like there's so many different kinds of combat, hand to hand and otherwise. Uh, uh, the Daredevil series on Netflix had some really wonderfully exciting, interesting shot things. Like it was innovative in many ways. You think the hallway fight scenes, some like what what is a thriller without a really good warehouse? you know, scene. So uh, incorporating that in there, it's going to allow us to do it. We're going to do it well, but to do it on a different professional level, to be able to say this stunt coordinator also worked on everything everywhere all at once. Um, this guy, like we, you know, instead of just making it like, uh, you know, a three move scene, like, okay, we can really flesh this out. And um, I think just give the people what they want and more, more of it and, and elevating it all the more and more. And every dollar, as we did with the last one, like putting in those big cinematic features and trying to put as much of every dollar on screen as possible. And so what we really wanted to do with the rewards is give that to the people like, we're gonna have some credits and like, uh, you know, gotta have future credits. So like, what if people can have that as a reward and they can get some movie props? What if uh, they have X or sorry, her name's X, the AI. What if they get a custom recording with their name like addressed to them to have from the show's AI voiceover talent or um, a copy of the script? Like one thing that I think people really enjoy, like, I don't know about everyone, but like the behind the scenes, the making of like, how did this happen? Like, what was this like? And so to put together a, a book that has behind the scenes photos, some of the casting photos, some of the costuming worksheets, along with the script and some early script notes and be able to have that as like a bound thing signed by the writer, director, or any um, star names that we get to have on, like to, to have that as a memento, I think that would be really cool. Who wrote the script? Jonathan. And did he have to go to any classes? Because writing a script and writing a book are two different skill sets. How That's did that true. happen? Uh, it's Jonathan. <laughs> uh, caffeine, reading, reading, reading so many scripts. I can't even tell you how many scripts he has read. So he he's read, you know, the Stranger Things scripts. He's read, uh, there's a lot of the scripts of the, of the movies or the shows that he has enjoyed. He has, um, or that are classics um read those and then you know lots of interviews uh he, he's watched to kind of understand like what is the feedback what is the director looking for like what in, informs um a performer when they're reading this like what are those nuances and then um he has in the past couple of years he's actually written some scripts with some couple of notable directors 
um, those things as Hollywood has it like kind of just sitting there waiting to be into further in development. But you know, getting feedback on those pieces and being able to take that and say, okay, like how do I improve my craft? And he'll tell you that writing a script is so much easier than writing a book because it's like some direction and it's all dialogue and all that prose and narrative is gone because a lot of it could be interpreted by the director and the performers. To, to I don't think I've it. ever seen a script for a movie or anything. I know just intuitively that uh, a movie script is going to look much like a play script. And you know, most of us read, you know, plays written by Shakespeare in high school. So there's going to be some, it's going to look some similar, but I imagine like there's going to be some differences too, you know, from what we would have read in high school to what Jonathan's putting together. So you mentioned that um, Jonathan wrote the script. Who's going to be directing it? Do you know that yet? Or is that going to be Jonathan? We do know and know that Jonathan does not want to be a director at all, uh, which is like a funny thing that like he is a blunt instrument he is so good he has so much energy and so much like passion behind what he does but when it comes to like nitty-gritty details and those nuances like it's taxing right he does not enjoy it like he could do it he's like but i don't enjoy it um so it'll be co-directed by uh um our cinematographer team so he's he's leading our cinematographer team but he is uh, his name's william helmuth and he has done alone and he has a few others that he's done. And then um, he'll be co-directing with me. So I'll be making my directorial debut on this one. Okay. Are you excited? Yeah. Nervous? Both. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of behind the camera directing experience on still and commercial stuff from my advertising agency days. But going into fiction like this, um, like film, I haven't. So that's why I'm excited to team up with someone who has much more behind the, you know, camera technical experience for us to collaborate on um, on bringing this to fruition. Yeah. So I, yeah, like I, it's like I believe in myself and I know I can do it, but I just want to make sure that the film itself is all it can be. Yeah, I get that. So I'm trying to think of how to ask. You know what, screw it. I'm not going to worry about being politically correct. Uh, yes, Jonathan is one of the, Jonathan is one of the authors these days. The, the trend is to write almost no description of the main characters because the idea is, well, mm -hmm. you just let the reader fill it in. I want. I'm the kind of reader. No, I want to know what does he look like. What does he sound like? Like you don't have to beat me over the head of it and tell me where every twelfth mole is, but but give me some idea to to paint the picture. When you write like that, though, that means when you if you're picking actors for the book. You come up to the question, do you pick the guy who has the best talent in sort of impersonates and characterizes the, the essence of the character? Or do you pick who looks like what you describe? So, for instance, uh, what if you described, we'll say, a white guy in, in this character because that's what's on the screen. But the best actor that just sort of has that mm, je ne sais quoi of that essence of what the character is happens to be a person of color. Do you pick? Do you prioritize when you're filming this? And this is a personal preference. There's no wrong answer, I don't think. Do you prioritize picking the look so it's true to the story or picking the essence of the character and care more about that so the actor might not line up? I know they're going to be purists either way who are going to get upset no matter what we do. So I'm just asking mm -hmm. what you and Jonathan think when you think about this. Yeah, no, um, the great thing is that Jonathan wants no part of the casting. <laughs> he, okay. he does not like it because he feels terrible for every no um 
so what we are maybe doing is actually on this one, hiring a casting director to a casting agent to help us find those people and give us access to folks that we wouldn't otherwise. So that's like another one of those like higher reward. If we have more money, we could do that and they'll have it in as opposed to me emailing their manager like, hey, want to be in my film? Um, and it's a, a combination of the two. So it's not just how we cast Daniel, it's the chemistry of the team of the leads together. So um, like, does he, whoever he is, relay to me the essence of this guy? Does he have a chip on his shoulder, but very likable? Cause you want people still like, does he have the charm to bring you in? He's not smarmy or, you know, saturated with that, uh, um, and just genuine, ingenuine charm. But like, you know, is there something about him that you, you find irresistible, kind of like a, a, a Hugh Jackman, even when he's in a character where he's kind of a, a, a jerk. Um, but also like, how do the people work together? So, you know, do we have, not diversity, like, do we have diversity? Are we checking boxes? But like, we're in future of humanity. So humanity on the moon is gonna have all kinds of humans. So where are all those people and how does someone portray a character and how does that relate to you know somebody else that they're on screen with and does is there enough dynamic difference um amongst everybody because you don't want it very flat where everybody kind of has a chip on their shoulder like is there somebody that okay this woman portrayed the bartender with warmth but this one portrayed it with like a chip on her shoulder both could be great interpretations of this character and then you know how does that work with everyone so there's so much more that goes into it that it's rarely down to something as simple as like is he relaying this character or is this a guy relaying this character he's white he's brown like or he's white he's black or whatever it is like it it has it doesn't come down to that and i've done that enough too in casting for um, like I said, the commercial stuff and the print stuff that I did before, because we would have um, like shoots for um, retail. And so there'd have to be families. So you have to look at like, how do the kids relate to the parents and how many like tall people and short, like, you know, we have to have a variety. So um, blondes, brunettes, whatever, black hair, like how are all of these pictures going together? Because what's going to sell that aesthetically when you're, you're doing retail and commercial So the same ideas kind of come into play here, but have a lot more depth because we're doing film. Okay. So yeah. that's what you were talking about with everyone having the, the chip on their shoulder. Like that's where you run into at a certain point in time, if you get older actors and if your character is older, you're going to have probably actors who've been around for a little bit. You get the William mm -hmm. Shatner slash Jonathan Frake. So that's uh, captain Kirk or number one, um, Commander Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation. But the reason I mentioned them is they became known for every actor they did after every, like later in their life, they became characters of themselves as they used to be when they were young, like caricatures of what they were as opposed to, you know, constantly reinventing the character. And there's a danger in that when you, when you pick, I would imagine, just as someone who likes to watch shows when I have time, like you want someone that's going to be the character from the story, not just themselves and if they're going to be just themselves and themselves better be the character that you envision yeah yeah no absolutely there's a character here uh gosh i just totally forgot his name wesley wesley cage 
And he, in Jonathan's mind, was inspired by uh, Captain Sam Turkel or Turk um, Rambo, the Colonel. Yeah, uh, yeah. In Rambo, yeah, right. So he's kind of a mentor figure, kind of like, but at the same time, you know, he kind of has Nick Fury esque to him, and uh, oh gosh, what was her name? She is uh, Viola Davis's character in the DC like Suicide Squad Peacemaker world. Uh, I forget her character's name, but like they're in charge. They know things, but they're be you know, and their their schemes have schemes. Their plans have backup plans. Like, but and they're seasoned, but you don't ever fully trust them just because they've been in the game for so long. And so, there are people that we know of that fit that exactly. And then there are people who could who could portray that. And as long as they're true to the character that we're trying to convey, either one is fine to cast. Um, you know, are they Wesley Cage? Are they can they can they be Wesley Cage slash or are they already essentially Wesley Cage? And so uh, what we don't want is to put anyone in that takes anyone out of uh, being immersed in the show. Again, it's 15 minutes, so I've got to get him in there solid for 15 That'd be minutes. Punchy. And then, yeah, and then also be like, I want more. Um, so yeah, and there's always like there is the potential to extend it or do an extended cut version um, and any of that. There's you know potential an investor like a proper investor could see this and be like, here's three million dollars, make me a feature film. Okay, so everyone gets to have a feature film, <laughs> and you know like that's. Like it's not, it's a lot less cut and dry than in publishing. You know, it's not like someone's going to so, be like, "Oh, here's here here's another ten thousand dollars to, you know, do your upfront costs." And I'm like, "Cool, I'm going to take this eighty thousand word novel and turn it into a three hundred thousand word novel." Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. So the character was Colonel Richard or Samuel Richard uh, Troutman. I looked it up. Uh, and he's played by Richard Crenna, but the Colonel Troutman was the, who you're talking about. Um, so I will say, because we mentioned, you know, the race slash gender swapping, if the character vibe was right, um, because, you know, like I said, there's no wrong answer. I will say that when Jonathan writes, he tends to have um, diverse characters because he, and it doesn't ever feel like, I'm eh, sounding like a fanboy, but it never felt like it was forced. He just writes what he knows in California is, yeah is such an epicenter of cultural, I don't know, immersion, I guess, because there's so much where you guys live. Mm -hmm. It's not like mm -hmm. in the middle of Heartland, Kansas, where you don't see a lot that's different from you. And that's not a bad thing. I, I love Kansas. I, I'd buy a missile silo there if I had a million dollars and could hire someone to fix it up. I'd have my own bunker. But um, I will say that because you write, because he writes so all over the place character wise, I think there's definitely room for all of that. So it's not a representation thing. That's not why I asked it. I was curious like where the, the, the emphasis was, was it on the personality or was it on matching the look or somewhere in between? Mm, um, because, yeah. yeah. Cause I think it's important for, you know, people that might not have heard of you where, where that matters, you know, in anything Jonathan writes, there's a chance you could see someone like you either in personality or in, you know, ethnicity or whatever. And it never felt forced because when it felt forced, I hate that. Like, no, no, just, you know, yeah. that, that feels like yeah. you're checking a box. Uh, I think with Jonathan, it's just because where you guys live, he sees so much of that, that just 
inevitably when you draw from people you know in real life, you get that, right? Like it's the same yeah, with military. Absolutely. Military sci-fi books tend to be that way because veterans tend to write them and you know, and it's a wide swath of people serving the military. So you meet people that, you know, if you were just living in BF nowhere, like you wouldn't have necessarily met, right? Like I think that makes a difference. Right. Yeah. So I do and have you know, an, and I don't know if people an, know this, but like Jonathan's brown. <laughs> He's Hispanic. He's Mexican. Uh, uh and so like his Look at this. The guy we have here is a as a as a Caucasian. He's a white guy, but it's just who he saw. But it was also like um, influenced, kind of inspired by the characters he grew up with. Like I said, the the man with no name or Josie Wells, like that kind of person is who he saw for this book. But on another series, that character has a different background and a different kind of story, and it was somewhat somewhat inspired by his grandfather who was a truck a long haul truck driver um and so um but again to, to your point like we're we're in southern california so we have all kinds of people all around us all the time um it's not an anomaly to see any type of person at the store or the gym or the park or whatever next to us and and again thinking in the mind like in the future when you're talking about humanity as a whole there's going to be a big melting pot um if not it's a different story of what happened to that country or that region that didn't make it uh, but that's not this story so yeah yeah and like i said I, I obviously the we talked about knowing your audience i know who my audience is as mill sci-fi but i also know that john's audience is different because he writes you know tend to be space exploration colonization you know genetic enhancements like all the sub genres that are equally as valid they have different audiences so I'm, I'm asking some of my questions because i know this is going to be seen by his readers and his listeners too so they can mm -hmm. kind of that's the trick when you learn when you're doing interviews half the time you ask questions you actually already know the answer to but the reader or the listener might not ergo you ask the question <laughs> yeah. um yeah. I, I think i've done over 500 at this point interviews but okay so this is the important question that fans of all this is episode like so hmm, we've got 300 episodes as blasters and blades um and then we are up we had 185 uh saved on sci-fi shenanigans and more that we recorded that never aired so yeah we're close to 500 um wow. if we're not there already but all right so this is the important question so a lot of actors and we're looking at you know mel brooks but um are you guys planning on cameos in the in the film i mean it's probably easier to fit in in a long film than it is a short film but uh you yeah. or john planning um, on Oh, like us? Yeah, like getting a, a walk on as, I don't know, extra number four in the back of the bar or whatever. Jonathan wants a speaking role. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Jonathan would want a straight up speaking role. And if you ask him, it's because not that he wants fame or, or fortune. Um, he, he wants to do things that like scare him, make him uncomfortable. And the idea of being on camera and having to perform and tap into that like other way of portraying and conveying and looking at things puts him out of his comfort zone and can grow him even as a, a storyteller author writer you know what have you and so he um he hopes that it will work out that he can have a role um in the film <laughs> i get but, that uh, I'm, I, always, I'm always off camera i am off camera <laughs> I, I get that like that idea like 
so my biggest regret in the army is I got hurt before I could go to airborne. So I, on my coming home from my second deployment, I actually had a slot. I was supposed to go to air, uh, to airborne school. Uh, the the act. So I was federalized reserve, meaning I spent enough time on active duty that they consider or they considered us reservists and guardsmen in my unit active duty because of the duration. Um, so like they were going to bring me on board. The unit commander wanted me. I was going to go to airborne school and I got hurt. And if people ask me why I would go, it's because I was afraid of heights. That's why I wanted to go to airborne school. Cause you got to challenge, like you got to tackle what, what bugs you. Right. So I totally get that mentality. So yeah. is he thinking he wants just to speak or is he going to want to do some of the like special, no, it's not special. What do you call it? stunts? Mm -mm. There you go. Is he going to no, do stunts? I'm, no, I'm going to put a no on that for now. Um, like, I don't think he, he does want to, but like, um, you using your wifely prerogative. And saying no. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> I don't know. More like his manager. Like he's had not any time recently, but like we'll just say like teenage to early twenties, several concussions. So we have rules about if we're doing this lifestyle and this business coming from his brain, we must protect said assets. And so, uh, of course, we're going to be safe. Of course, we're always being safe. But like when he was taking boxing lessons. He was never gonna spar. Like he was just uh, learning all the moves and, and sweating all the sweat. So, um, like that's yeah, that's kind of like the the rule with like combat or getting into those spaces is like protect the brain, protect the hands. And so, like he can talk and speak and walk on set all he wants. That's it. But no, nothing physical. <laughs> Yeah, I, I joked with Jason and Nick when we were uh, when I was publishing the reservist that if they ever did the movie, I wanted a, a walk on role. I didn't need to take my bucket off, and I needed to be pregnant legionnaire number two, right? Just because you know, so I like here with the fat guy. Um, they said no on that, so I guess my speaking role is over. Um, these are not the droids you're looking for. Um, okay, so I have said for years that one of the downfalls of modern Hollywood, which is where dust gets it right. And some of the indie films gets it right because YouTube and Rumble and BitChute are starting to be great avenues for indie films to get traction they wouldn't otherwise get. And I think mm -hmm. one of the differences is a lot of the actors on the indie side come from the stage, right? They were high school drama kids. Mm -hmm. They might have done local stage productions, but they acted in real time in front of people. They could see the audience reaction. They learned what worked, what didn't. And in many cases, they took sort of the classical learning approach, even if it wasn't at the prestigious studios or the prestigious you know schools or whatever, they still had that sort of styling. Whereas modern Hollywood, are you pretty? Can you flex? You know, you are you visibly attractive for whatever your gender is? And, you know, then it's all green screen, right? Where they just stand in front of a green screen. And I will say there is some skill in making that believable, like that the, the world yeah. behind you is actually on fire. But it's not the same skill set. I know one of the things that makes indie stand out, indie films stand out, is they go with the more kinetic. So when they show an explosion, like they do a small one and then they amp it up, obviously with CGI. But it's not just green screen. They're actually acting that out. What approach do you guys think you're going to take? Is that funding dependent? Do you think you want to do more green screen, or do you want to do more no, in person? More practical. Mm -hmm, more practical. I actually think uh, that looks better. I, I like that better personally, yeah. but. There's no wrong answer either yeah. as far as the viewers. And then viewers. there's this other really interesting thing. And anyone who's watched Mandalorian uh, series and or the making of Mandalorian would know this. is this new thing with these LED walls. So you go into a sound stage and instead of having like green screens behind you, it's LED walls. So you have practical stuff stage on the ground, but the background is, it's just like big TVs, right? And somebody has to program. So it's a merging of the two. 
all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's one way to do it. And a lot of new stages that are being built around the country, they're looking to build these LED wall um, stages. And that was one thing that had been proposed to us. Um, I think it was a, a film commissioner of Dallas or something like that. And so, um, we know that may be something we can do down the line and that will give us benefits to shooting in Dallas because uh, different areas outside of the Hollywood film zone offers, uh, it's called soft money benefits. Uh, what is the film? Um, like write-offs and all kinds of other things. So um, yeah, for us, practical, like because it's 15 minutes. So it's not like we're spanning the moon, like we're gonna be in some uh, tight locations. And so we're, we'll be able to get that, um, get that. So the cover here, like we're probably not gonna see him at this up angle where you see the whole city in such a way, but we can get that if we did like some still photography for the promotions and the posters and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, he's in a, he's in a bar, he's in his apartment. He is going to get ready to go on a drop ship to leave um, the moon um, and things like that. But you, there are just, there's just so many creative ways to be able to execute and uh, communicate that still on screen without having to go to full green screen. Like there might be a green screen element, but that's not going to be like a full green screen background and all the CGI after the dot things are the the Smeagol Gollum dot things that Andy yeah I know what you're talking about yeah so yeah. so you're gonna go more practical effects so mm -hmm. Jonathan is pretty good at mixing like in humorous situations so he doesn't write mm -hmm. what I would consider comedy because that actually from marketing mm -hmm. that's hard to sell but you put comedic elements in stories and it makes it you know a lot of people like that specifically mm -hmm. uh, that is his writing style too so how much of this short, I'm assuming the script for this has already been written, correct? It's been written and rewritten. He's on his fourth, fifth draft right now. So how much of this is a serious thriller? How much of it's going to have his trademark humor in it? Like, where do you see that all playing out if you've read it? Uh, yeah, the same, same thing. It's all um, emotional beats. So um, that humor allows us to release certain tensions and to like let go of that breath. I didn't know we were holding and releases different chemicals within us. Uh, that is my right brain way of looking at it. But Jonathan's left brain way of looking at it is like he wants to have that peppered in natural. The character is sarcastic. He says those things and you get to situations and like what he says is going to be that. So it may not be a full laugh out loud riotous moment, but there'll be like a huh, chuckle, chuckle in here throughout um, peppered in there um, naturally as it fits within those characters who like there's some that are just deadpan so they're not going to have any of that so have you thought out all of your stretch i know we're getting close on time because you know i try to do wherever we cut the commercial i try to make the other half where we talk about the project as long as the lead up so we're already okay. there so we're good so at this point if you've okay. got to go i understand um yeah but, you see how dark it's gotten in here <laughs> it was daytime when we started I mean, it's, yeah well it's 11 o'clock here because I'm, I'm hours ahead of you but I, i'm okay. I, I'm, okay I'm having fun so okay. what kind of what kind of um stretch goals that are more like obviously there's there's some about what you'll be able to do for the project a better this a better light a better led wall whatever but obviously yeah. some of those perks are going to be more geared towards i don't want to call them vanity projects but more geared towards the the person supporting it so like i could see Every in a film goal, i don't know Every goal yeah. is oriented to what someone gets. So even if we get to the $85,000, yes, that means we get to have 
uh, a, a casting director who's going to get us Martin Cove. Um, what's his name? Uh, Sensei Kreese. He's super nice, by the way. Um, we've met him. Uh, Sensei Kreese to play Wesley Cage, you know, at $85,000. Sure. That's for us and the film, but for the contributors, like they still get something. And so that could be like, a, you know, just people want the 13th book written in this series because, you know, everybody always gets like, is there going to be more of this series? Um, okay. So like, hey, if you guys love it that much, you get book 13. Um, uh, again, the signed, the, the script with all the behind the scenes photos and notes and all of that stuff is going to be in there. Props from the, um, from the show, like there's blasters, there's going to be armor, helmets, uh, coins, uh, stuff that makes it like, if not guys, it's all going to be in my garage. I might as well go ahead and give it back to you guys. Like I have no use for it. I want you to have it. Um, we have special t-shirts, there's screenings. Like I said, we're going to be uh, applying to film festivals. We got into four or five for the last one. This one will get into many more all over the country and France. Maybe we can get into Cannes. Um, so we'll invite people, we get people, like we get extra tickets. So that way that could be one of the things if somebody, you know, people want to want to do that or we'll have a big screening event would be one of those stretch core rewards, um, a commemorative coin, signed merchandise. Oh gosh, we pulled readers, we pulled different Kickstarter groups and Kickstarter like junkies to find like, what is it that you love? What, are the be what did Vox Machina do that everybody loved and thought was cool I and mean, those are all the things that we are offering because it's like a, a two or threefold thing one you're getting part to be part of something bigger and you're going to be part of a community um that loves the same things that you love you get all the behind the scenes information weekly like video or email updates um you're going to get the film because we cannot put it public until after it has gone through all of its uh, screen festival run and then um and then if somebody decides to pick it up, they may say like, we want to buy this so we can never put it out there to the general public. But people who contribute to the Kickstarter will be able to actually see it through a private link. And then um, then there's also like all the other rewards at every tier. What did I say? T-shirt, you could be associate producer, you can get your name in IMDb. You could pay to be on set. You could pay to come and be an extra. You could have a speaking role. like within reason, right? So we have all of that kind of mapped out within the script or like an off-camera voice or things like, like that. And so we want to um, like feed, give the people what they want. Like, what do you guys want? That is what we've looked into making sure that everybody gets at every step of the way. I oh, know I backed one that was... Uh, sorry, is that a, I had somebody ask me and it like totally like didn't even dawn on me. They're like, well, like, you have like what is your investment start at it must be so much to do a film and i'm like oh that's a good point our rewards start at five dollars so you can be part of this it just five dollars you can be on it and get your imdb and on-screen credit for fifteen hundred dollars you know like you can come vip all the way red carpet get photos with the cast and crew for like five thousand dollars i don't know if that's what it is but you know all all of it adds up so um, and what's nice is like there's a lot of people who want to get into film and like don't know how yet or how do I begin to do this? What is it going to take for me to build my uh, my cachet, my um, body of work, so I can show that I can be a filmmaker? Like this partnering and collaborating at this level is something that will help you to do that. 
I, I backed one, um, and it didn't end up – the weird thing about Kickstarter is if you don't get enough, it doesn't happen. Uh, right. There are others like GoFundMe and uh, Gifts and Go and a few others where even if they don't meet the minimum, like they still give it. But that's more – that's less project-specific and more cost-specific, right? Like, oh, I want to mm-hmm. fund an mm-hmm. extension of this library, whatever. Um, whereas Kickstarter is, sp- generally speaking, specifically for a specific project. Um, mm-hmm. I saw one that I backed and it didn't end up coming to fruition just because it didn't get enough. It was a World War mm-hmm. II movie, but it was like one one um, value got you an actor because they were doing the same thing. They wanted to shop it to the uh, festivals. And so like a certain value got you an actual physical DVD copy uh, where the insert was signed because, you know, the, the links mm-hmm. only last for so long, but a DVD is forever. Uh, yes. I think one level got you a five minute phone call from the main character as the main character, not as the actor playing the main character. So you weren't That's talking cool. to John Wayne, you were talking to the green beret. He played it kind of thing. Um, but like yeah. a, a set timed call or, or what you talked about, like they'll record your voice answering machine message or, you know, like you could get creative with some of those perks. I think mm-hmm. that don't actually take yep. a huge investment, but would mean the world to the person paying for it. Right. I think we take for grant can we can take for granted um, the world we live in, kind of like what our our reality is, and that you know that it, it seems so commonplace to us, or it can seem so commonplace to us. But for someone else in a very different situation, they're like, I wish I could be part of filmmaking, but I don't have that creative side of me. But I want to be part. Like I wouldn't even know where to get started. Like this is a way you could be part of it. Um, I don't even like Netflix has uh, the movies that made us behind the series. And then they went on to do two additional seasons. So clearly it's something people wanted to know about. And so we're saying like, we're going to do this no matter what one way or the other, this is your chance to be a part of it. Like we're inviting you for this exciting journey with us. And that's why we set it at 20,000 because that seems pretty attainable. Um, We did do a Kickstarter for our last film actually two films ago and uh, that one did almost sixty thousand um dollars and so you know uh, i think that we you know we'll do great on on this one and so if anyone's like well to your point you're like what if it doesn't get made and now i'm excited and i've given you my best five dollars it's like no we're one way or another like we're gonna do this i'll just get jumped in some more caffeine <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the one that I backed in the World War II one was I paid for, uh, they had some scenes where it was like in the office and the, the main character was a soldier and it's like him at, you know, various military type stuff. And they would, you would give them a picture of you at the age where you would have been a soldier and they would have digitally changed it. So you would fit in the picture in the background as you, the, the backer was in, like basically became a part of the prop, which I thought was kind of cool. Really cool. Uh, yeah. And you could pay yeah. for your name tag. So I would have, if it had gotten made, you know, Soldier One would be, you know, Private Handley, right? Like it would have been, I thought yeah. that was kind of cool. I don't know that if that works cool. as well. Name tapes don't work as well in modern sci-fi most of the time. But like the personal stuff is I think what people like more, more than a challenge coin, which they might throw in a cabinet and forget about. But like the prop that was in the movie or, you know, a character, you know, with their name tag on it as random soldier, like that kind of stuff, I think people dig. Yeah, we have some so. guys that like, they're kind of, they're called grunts, but like, they deserve that name in any particular scene. Um, and they're going to have to have names on them. So like we can make up a name or we could use your name. Like, what do you guys want? So uh, to be able to see that or in our last film, um, there was like a lab and like, uh, it was um, kind of like minority report esque with like 
it's uh, holographic. And so on that, like you saw stats and information about different people, then you can we could insert someone's name there, you know, pause the screen and like, oh, there I am for 2.5, you know, frames. <laughs> so yeah. but for, for some people, that'd be like the highlight of their life. That'd be kind of cool. Like I was in film. I'm happy to share that. Like, I don't need, I don't need all those moments. I would rather go to someone that would just really appreciate it and be like the cherry on top for their, for their season or their life or whatever it is. Like, again, if we could have been called to do several things, but Jonathan is a storyteller and I'm a you know manager, marketer, producer, like that is who we are. And so if that's like the role we're stepping into all the ancillary benefits, we are happy to share with the community uh, at large. And um, like, if anyone hasn't yet read one of Jonathan's books or want to know what he's about, like be in his Facebook group. He's active in there. He's talking to people, he's like, exchanging. Uh, they talk to each other. Like we're very community oriented. He's an introvert, but it means a lot to him to have this community. Cause it's like, we get to do this because of this community. And so we want to keep doing it for this community. Um, so yeah. That's what All right, so I know you're you're getting late, so I've got three last questions for you. Okay, one, cool. I will like, tell I you, dear. You. <laughs> yeah, it's um. So one of the things people don't realize is stretch. Like you, your set goal for a Kickstarter that can't change because if you do, you're violating the terms of service. But mm -hmm. stretch goals can mm -hmm. because most of the time, if something's a runaway success, like they didn't plan for it to reach quarter million or insert you know wish list dreams, so they didn't have stretch goals that high. And so I, I remember the Four Horsemen Universe Kickstarter, they had to constantly keep making up new stretch goals as their game, they, they built a, a card game thing, I think. Uh, but as it kept mm -hmm. getting more backing, they kept adding stretch goals because, well, they filled mm -hmm. the old ones, so they needed to add more. So if you have certain ideas, uh, when you listen to this episode on Wednesday, the Kickstarter's only been live for a day, and so it's gonna be live for 30 days. So if you have ideas for Kickstarters, back the $5 so you're in, and then you know they can add stretch goals and you know you might you might win a chance for whatever because there's still room for feedback on the stretch goals those are not set in stone and they have flexibility there so if there's something you really like reach out to jennifer and i'm sure you know she's she's willing to work with you because she wants your money to fund this project and that's the cool thing this is like um yeah venture capital almost you're the venture capitalist on their film so they, they yeah. you know like I would like your money to fund this. I want you to be a part of it. Like I want, I want to have that exchange. I want to be able to like share this adventure together. So, um, you know, this is airing on the 10th, July 10th. So it closes August 10th or 11th. I can't remember. Um, mm -hmm. So from the, so we'll assume that you fund from the time the Kickstarter yeah. ends to when filming, like what is the timeline after the finishing of this, Kickstarter going to look like obviously there's a lot of variables so we're looking more you know large picture thing like we take x number of days to roughly do this like what what's a rough timeline do you think yeah for sure um okay so we've already technically we're in development and we will be in pre-production um by the middle uh by uh so we're going to comic-con in a couple of weeks Jonathan's going to be on a panel we're going to have a table there so that's going to take up a little bit of our time and attention but after that i would say by early august will be in what's considered pre-production and that's where we're like getting into signing contracts or making agreements with folks and all of that and then um we plan to film at the end of october and we'll go into post-production um 
after that any pickup days like oh, we it is our intention to not have any pickup days of filming but if we needed to add a shot or something based on how editing is going we could and we'll go into that things will be a little bit sleepy over the holidays that's just the nature of things and then we'll be able to start applying to film festivals um to start being in them by by early next year in early okay. 2024 it'll be applied mm -hmm. And, and to back this Kickstarter, I think I'm going to reach out to Jonathan once I get my uh, Wi-Fi fixed. They're coming out tomorrow, uh, and I will see if I could do an interview, an interview just about the for Forsaken Mercenary universe. Um, and that way, mm -hmm. I can tie the two episodes together. So look for that if you're listening to this. Uh, I don't know that Jonathan knows it, but we just uh, Jen and I just volunteered him. Um, we'll have him on to talk about the universe specifically. It does two things for people that haven't read the books. They can learn about the books and people that back it, but haven't read the books and want to like, it, it'll be all of the things funding into funneling into each other. So that's, that is going to be is soon. The, the giveaways JR, that you remind, there's so many um, is the reward. So you fund, you, you uh, back the project with a certain dollar amount. And one of them is like, if you want to be an author, we have a, a window for like so many people to write their own kind of forsaken mercenary character world, their own mercenary um, kind of think of like Jason Bourne has all these different mercenaries um, and into an anthology. So he'll like guide, we'll guide you through that process with your story and then we'll publish you um, as an author. So you'll be able to be an author and have gone through with the, I guess, I guess we'd call successful accomplished production uh, publishing company. And so, uh, but in order for people to know what that universe looks like, we're going to give them all, all the books in the series. And then we found a company that publishes the, um, the box set boxes for physical copies, a nice collector edition as well. Um, uh, if somebody wanted to get the 12 books, like I'm a reader, I'm excited for this, or I've read the series and I would like something nice to put on my bookshelf. You can do that as well. And to be clear, so for anyone listening who's on the writer side, what you're paying for when you back that anthology and you back that is one, you're paying for one on one, essentially mentoring with someone who's making it in the business. It's his full time job. Uh, so that has value. And you are paying for the permission to write in a world that presumably if you're backing this, you love as well, because there's nothing stopping you from applying to any random anthology. I know I do a couple a year. Like you could always do that. What you're getting is something special. You're getting the one on one mentorship on the story which if you're paying for an edit, that can get expensive for a developmental editing. And you're getting the right to play in a universe that you like because the difference between you know, licensed property and fan fiction is one, you have permission to write in the world. And two, if he publishes that anthology, is it gonna be canon or no? Because that's a big distinction. Um, they will do it Jonathan style where like it's canon if you wanna get that close, but if you wanna kind of create your own space within the universe, and so the lines don't cross. You have a lot more liberty. So it's it's canon in the world, not canon to the specific story. You're writing in the world, but yeah. in the dark corners, and you can get away with more. Okay, so yeah. you're you're getting permission to write essentially in a licensed property, which you know is is can be fun because, like I said, you get readers you might not have otherwise gotten. So I think that has value. Just making sure they understand where the value lies, so they know what they're getting into. Um, oh yeah, thank so you. So do you framed it so well? Yeah. Well, I mean, my first, I got lucky. Like uh, my first published series was in someone else's universe. So I had that help and I didn't realize how valuable it was until I've worked with other authors who've never had that. And I'm like, oh, so mm -hmm. I did kind of get lucky. 
Um, but but we're here to talk about Jonathan. So uh, what are your close and, and you obviously because you're you're his business manager. But what are your closing thoughts on this Kickstarter um, that you want people to know before we wrap this up? Um, like we're transparent. We are very honest. Uh, you can see actually if you want to like what our quality of work is going to be. Um, check out Infinity System. It's now available on YouTube, so you could see the first film that we did. And uh, it's just like, this is going to happen. The train is leaving the station. This is your chance to be a part of it and you know, be part of something exciting that you can feel good about and you could share with just about anybody in your family. Like, I would show it to my three-year-old, but he probably wouldn't be interested. But that's the cool thing is that I could share it with my dad and he would also like be very interested in the story that like it's something that anyone um, could enjoy. And so like that, I feel like in today's day and age can be hard to come by so yeah absolutely all right so uh i will link all of the show notes in the show notes <laughs> i will link in the show notes all of their social media contacts i will get with them in post-production from this interview and get all of that linked together but where other than the kickstarter page which i have linked for uh, where would people go if they're interested more about your work as jr castle uh wolf Pack productions archimedes press all the things that are you and jonathan like where do they go to get more I don't know. Uh, so I would start with like the biggest bit of information is going to be Jonathan's website, Jonathan-Yanez, Y-A-N-E-Z.com would be the main one. And then uh, you can go if you want film specific, uh, you go to Jonathan-Yanez.com slash oh, hey, and all of the little links for like the publishing company and the film uh, production company are are there too. So you don't have to memorize too many. URLs. So jonathan-yanez.com slash oh hey. All right. And that will all be linked in the show notes, dear listener. And uh, she's going to fall asleep and turn into a pumpkin soon. And I don't want that. And I forgot to give her time to get coffee because we've been talking for two hours having that much fun. But before I let you go, dear listener, I'd like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part, people. Uh, And that also applies to movies. So if you go over to the um, movie that he has, The Infinity System, on their YouTube channel, you can go and click the up thumbs up button. That helps. Share it with your friends. That helps. Do the same with books. Write reviews. Uh, You can leave comments on Jonathan's website, I believe. It used to. Can you still do that? Um, is there still the forum can, page that used to be there? No. Okay. But you can go, so, yeah, but if you can go on Facebook or uh, YouTube, um, both of them. Or you can email him if you have some thoughts. There you go. If you don't want to go social, please, yeah, there's an email form right up front. You can send him an email and let him know what's up. Yeah, and um, – People don't realize that when you write your reviews on Amazon, Amazon terms of service say that they're for Amazon's website. And I couldn't, as an author, use quotes from a review posted there unless I have express written permission from the person who posted it, meaning like they told me to. Uh, So if you have reviews and you want to say, you know what, I really like this. Here's my thoughts. And feel free to use this in ad copy. Like that has value too. So if you, if you, you know, want to do your part and you write a well thought out review, like that's one way to reach out and do that. Cause I always make a caveat. Like when I write them, I have no problem if the authors mind the hell out of it for, for one-liners. I mean, I tend not to write my reviews that succinctly, but uh, I mentioned that to say, if you wanted to do that to help, that'd be one cool thing you could do is say, you know, this was X meets Y and I loved it. And it could have been, you know, no per- more perfect, whatever. Like that's, that's one way you can help. 
So with that being said, you can find us over on our link tree where we collaborate and, and cohesively link all the things. It's linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, linktree backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. I will hyperlink on that link tree our BitChute account, which is new and slowly mirroring all of our YouTube uh, over there and all of the audio pod. Well, I guess the podcast is the same thing. Uh, and Rumble. YouTube does not like it when I link to those. So the link tree gets around that. But we do have a BitChute and we do have a Rumble. Tech support, if you listen to our update, I said we weren't going to mess with it because it, it didn't take long form. Tech support got back to me and they're working with me. Um, they saw the value in our podcast and all 300 hours plus of content to get ported over. So they're like, yeah, we'll work with you. Um, I, I'm going to assume that was just for me and not that they would have done that for anybody that asks because we're special. Uh, we are over on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Again, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all of the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Jonathan also has a group, which I will link to in the show notes because he's very active over there. If you ever want to talk to the author you like reading that is the place to do it and he does interactive interviews of himself to you uh, at least once a month on the uh, facebook mm -hmm. live feature and if i can pressure jennifer enough maybe one day he'll put that on his youtube page as well um oh yeah but those are always those are always available so if you wanted more you know in depth that's sort of the way to do it for jonathan um, we have a Facebook page, which is separate from the group, which doesn't have a dedicated URL yet. But if you Google or if you type in the search bar on Facebook, uh, Blasters and Blades um, podcast, there, there's a page as well where we share book reviews, we share our episodes, we ramble incoherently about all things sci-fi and fantasy. Um, and we have our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. These podcasts are not free to produce. There is some overhead and we appreciate it when you defray the costs, uh, or you could support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the pot. Yeah. Be sure to put in the comment section that is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes or wherever your kidneys. I don't know. I, I wasn't a biologist, people. Whatever processes your coffee addiction. Um, and with that being said, thank you, Jennifer, for coming on. We really appreciate it. This was thank fun. You so much. Jonathan's going to be sorry he missed this two-hour interview. Um, but uh, <laughs> you, dear listener, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. <laughs>